0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Strap4Talks, the monthly podcast that tapes you deep into discussions on geopolitical and security affairs. I'm Marla Moore.
1: And I'm Ben Sheen, and we're your hosts for the show.
0: We have two parts to the show today. First, we'll take a look at what the future holds for Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez's successor may soon be ousted from the presidency, with Latin America analyst Reggie Thompson. And then we'll turn to Belgium and how social and cultural circumstances there connect with the jihadist cells that carried out the recent terrorist attacks in Brussels and Paris.
1: As always, if you have feedback, questions, or ideas for a podcast topic, drop us a line on stratforcom slash podcast slash feedback. You can also follow us on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter, where our handle is at Stratfor. And now, on to our first segment. We turn now to Venezuela, where all forms of political stability appear to have died with President Hugo Chavez back in 2013. There are currently two efforts now underway to oust his successor, President Nicolas Maduro. Stratfor's senior Latin American analyst, Reggie Thompson, is here now to tell us what lies ahead for the country's political and economic future. So, Reggie, say what you will about Venezuela, it's an interesting country to watch. Just when you think things couldn't be much worse, there's always some kind of fresh hell waiting around the corner. So, let's start with the political crisis. Right now, we've got dual efforts underway to oust Maduro, who is tensively hanging on to power. Exactly, why is he so unpopular at the moment? And why did this sort of
2: leadership crisis not emerge under Chavez. So Venezuela finds itself in the middle of an economic crisis that has steadily turned into a political one, and uh, the president simply won't take measures to solve the crisis or to address it simply because these are detrimental to his political survival. Measures like raising the price of gasoline or undertaking um, tributary reforms, you know, uh, reforms, tax reforms to try to raise uh, government income, he's simply not going to do those at this time. He's uh, hoping to ride out the low oil prices. The opposition obviously sees an opportunity to advance into power by removing Maduro um, and the dissidents within the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the ruling party, Maduro's own party. They're also pushing to house the president and uh, precisely because the inaction on the part of the president combined with his low popularity could threaten the party's long term ability to stay in power. There are two risks to the PSUV, um, as the party is known, if they continue with the increasingly unpopular Maduro at the helm. Uh, The first of these risks, obviously, is that they get voted out in the next presidential elections in 2019 and lose control of governor posts in the country in elections slated for later this year. There is also a second threat, however, and this one is on the minds of uh, quite a few of the PSUV elites. And this is the threat of widespread protests, increasing demonstrations from um, the public, from potential voters, from average Venezuelans that are feeling the pain of, uh, of the economic crisis right now. And that is something that um, the party is responding to strongly right now. And removing Maduro sooner rather than later may be their best way to deal with this potential threat. Basically, they will try to uh, deflect some of the public's anger, Against the president and against the ruling party by seeming to offer a solution in the form of the president's departure
0: well, I think in all fairness to to President Maduro, who is as you say extraordinarily unpopular at the moment, it's difficult to really put that in context without systematically looking at what happened to Venezuela under Chavez, who was you know for all intents and purposes a larger than life figure um, he was not a dictator, he was democratically elected but it was kind of sketchy in the way that he held that country together. And the state that it finds itself in today is very much uh, his creation. Can you step back for just a moment from the actual political crisis and, you know, explain for us a little bit just how difficult the daily life of an average Venezuelan actually is at the moment? And, and we, we came to that over the course of a number of years.
2: So right now, the average Venezuelan's dual problems are very high inflation that keeps going up on an almost weekly basis and consistent shortages really across the nation of food items and uh, basic goods that that, uh, Venezuelans really require to survive on a day-to-day basis. Lots of items have become increasingly scarce. Uh, This is a trend that, although it started under Chavez... It's gotten significantly worse under Maduro, particularly after the um, after the decline in the price of oil globally. And so Venezuela, the way it's been dealing with the fall in the price of oil has been to slash imports. Venezuela is a very import-reliant country. It relies on imported goods for really quite a bit of what's consumed domestically. And so you've got uh, Venezuela dealing with the situation, dealing with uh, this significant drop in cash flow by essentially cutting goods up to 40 percent of uh, imports have been cut um, by some estimates. And so this has simply exacerbated existing problems. You're seeing long lines, particularly in uh, areas where the, the government sells food and sells other goods at, uh, at discounts. And you've got this uh, sort of uh, informal economy forming around uh, around the uh, sale points for these goods. They call them um colloquially there in Venezuela, but it's basically a, a black market of sorts. Most Venezuelans uh, really can't access this market if if they're in the uh, if they're in the about half of the country that really is is in dire straits right now. So essentially, they can't access the private the black market. If you're, an, if you're a normal Venezuelan, so you have to wait in line. And so obviously that angers many Venezuelans and that is likely a motivating factor in uh, in essentially how Venezuelans have been defecting from the ruling party, from the PSUV that was most visible in these last elections in December 6th when the legislature was uh, was voted on and uh, the opposition was giving a commanding uh, two-thirds supermajority. And really you're starting to see this anger being felt in the, uh, in the electoral field and If things continue the way they are continuing, which without government adjustments um, really seems to be how they they will, the path they will continue on, um, that could uh, turn into protest. You're already seeing a lot of isolated social demonstrations, a lot of isolated uh, roadblocks, burning of tires, uh, isolated store lootings, things like that. But this really could coalesce into more widespread unrest. if the government does nothing. So it's definitely a concern going forward.
0: Right. Well, when we're talking about those shortages, I mean, we're talking about basic things that you need to live, things like milk, uh, things like bread. We've known for quite some time also about rolling blackouts because there's an energy shortage in Venezuela, which I'm sure is extremely annoying uh, for them to have to live with. And we're also talking about seriously high crime rates.
2: Yes, uh, these are all social problems that keep affecting Venezuela. They have been affecting Venezuela since the Chavez years and and even before in some cases. But really, they've been exacerbated. The government is increasingly unable to deal with a lot of these problems precisely because of the ongoing economic crisis. In the case of crime, uh, it's because Venezuela is a pipeline for cocaine leaving Colombia for markets in the United States and in Europe and even in Asia. So you've really got a situation in which a very cash-strapped government is increasingly unable to provide even basic services in some cases. You have seen situations like the electrical grid uh, being neglected. You've got um, very subsidized electricity that does not um, really give the returns to the government in the form of uh, electricity fees that other countries have. So you've seen the government neglecting basic maintenance in some cases. And um, that really does have an effect down the line. Uh, the next government that comes after President Nicolas Maduro, whether it's uh, in the coming year, in the next two years or after elections in 2019, is going to inherit a system that is increasingly broken um, in terms of reliable electricity supply, in terms of reliable infrastructure, never mind the economic imbalances.
1: Now here it seems we face something of another conundrum because clearly Maduro is massively unpopular at the moment but he is nearing the end of his political tenure yet it seems like he's unwilling to relinquish power and in the process of actually trying to get him out and then move in and hopefully try and allow Venezuela to, to regain some, some of its standing, it seems like whoever takes power after him is going to inherit this absolute mess. I mean, what's currently being done to really uh, remove him from power and what could be done in the future to actually rejuvenate Venezuela?
2: So in terms of uh, Maduro's potential ouster, there's two uh, distinct currents right now in Venezuela trying to push for that outcome. One, of course, is from the opposition coalition, the Democratic Unity Roundtable, they made it their mission um, since they came into the legislature in January to seek constitutional mechanisms to remove the president. Now, right now, there are two distinct initiatives being pushed by the by the opposition coalition known uh, in Spanish by its acronym MUD. One of them is a constitutional amendment to shorten the president's tenure and to hold new elections in December 2016. The other one is a referendum initiative. Now they need to collect signatures for this, which they have already begun, and they need the National Electoral Council's approval at several steps in the process of holding the referendum. Now this is a recall referendum on Maduro that would, under the current law, be presented to um, the Venezuelan population later this year. Now, there are several drawbacks to this, though, and the main ones lie in the National Electoral Council and the Supreme Court of Justice. Both of these bodies are controlled by the PSUV, and they are um, legal bodies that could potentially delay either a referendum or a constitutional amendment designed to um, shorten Maduro's tenure. So really, right now, what has developed is a gridlock in Venezuela between the central government, um, mostly the president and his immediate allies and the legislature and so how this deadlock will be broken is really what to watch for in venezuela the psuv has the potential to break this deadlock by uh the defecting the defection of uh of members of the psuv towards the opposition in a temporary alliance of sorts now, that is something that is, is uh, increasingly plausible because you've got members of the PSUV within the president's own uh, own immediate circle calling for his resignation. This is in the form of governors who feel they will be affected by the loss of their governor posts in elections slated for later this year. And so these are military governors. Uh, they likely still have some pull within the party, potentially even within the military ranks. So they are trying to pressure for the president's uh, resignation. Now, Maduro has been trying to hold on to power, but if enough voices from within his party start really agreeing with the opposition and start pressuring him from the inside there 's really not a whole lot he'll be able to do now in the in the view of the party it's probably best to transition slowly towards a uh, a uh, negotiated withdrawal of the president from power than to try to remove him uh, quickly and have him potentially resist so it looks like that 's what 's shaping up right now, but Maduro still has the potential to try to make um, to try to make his departure potentially costly. So at this point, really, it depends on how many people start pressuring the president later this year as the opposition attempts to advance their referendum initiative. Now as to the second part of that question, how Venezuela will um be... um rejuvenated if you will after after uh, years of economic mismanagement it's going to be a difficult road right now we really haven't hit bottom yet because difficult economic measures such as raising taxes such as raising the price of gasoline have simply not been taken and so the next government whether it's maduro in a second term or whether it's the opposition or even another member of psuv at the helm They're going to face the same constraints down the line, and that's going to be trying to conduct an economic reform package without facing um, significant social unrest. So it's probably going to be slow um certain aspects uh, endemic to Venezuela such as the dual currency system uh right now that's that's in place that's generate that has generated and continues to generate quite a bit of economic distortions that's going to have to be taken out but it's probably going to be phased out slowly and it, overall it's going to be a slow road back up towards uh even what Venezuela was 10 years ago never mind into making it attractive to foreign capital uh really Venezuela is facing a long road ahead And the threat of financial default later this year is threatening to unleash just a wave of litigation similar to what Argentina experienced after they defaulted in 2001. And so if the state oil company of Venezuela, Petróleos de Venezuela, defaults on its uh, foreign debt in October or November, so there's about $5 billion in foreign debt due at that point, really that's that's kind of a a major catastrophe for Venezuela. Remember that oil is responsible for 90% of Venezuela's export revenue. And so if Venezuela defaults on its foreign debt, you've got some tough times ahead. Nobody will lend to PDVSA. It's going to be increasingly hard for them to find financing. They can go to places like China and Russia, potentially, for additional um, loans. But it it really is a difficult conundrum.
0: You touched on several very key points there, one of which is that Essentially, the economy under Chavez, with the heavy subsidies and the way that he more or less purchased support over the years when oil prices were high, in that time, he also did quite a bit to alienate and uh, frighten foreign investors, expropriations of properties, expanding the role and the scope of Pitavesa to make it responsible for, for social things that are normally outside the purview of oil companies. Now, you know, having lost the the engineering talent that powered Pitavesa before all of that took place, and given the fact that the economy was slowly but steadily driven toward a cliff. You might say that Chavez simply had the good grace to, uh, to die before <laughs> the oil price tanked and, and leave his problems to someone else. But it's going to take quite a bit of effort to bring the economy back from that brink. And in the meantime, we've even heard reports that may be harder than you would expect because there's something of a, at least fears of a brain drain uh, leaving the country with, the, with youth and students. Uh, can you tell us more about that?
2: Venezuela has experienced a brain drain for the better part of a decade now. And increasingly, as the economy tanks, uh, you've got more and more people just choosing to remain abroad. And so finding qualified personnel to run PDVSA in the future um, may be a challenge. I mean, more Venezuelans may return to Venezuela really after um, substantial changes are made in the way Venezuela runs um, its economy. but that's not going to be for the, for the near future. This is really something that's, that, that could develop in the medium term even because uh, there really are so many social problems in Venezuela that, that people essentially fled over the past decade. And so the, the chance that the brain drain will be reversed anytime soon that that, that really is, um, that really is unlikely. So, Reggie,
1: looking ahead to some of the various scenarios facing Venezuela at the moment, what are we looking at
2: in terms of uh, default scenarios for them? So, the threat of financial default on the part of PDVSA is still a significant risk for this year, particularly in the months of October and November when around $5 billion in debt payments are due. Now, the risk of default, as I've mentioned, is... uh, it, it, it really is a significant problem for the Venezuelan government. 90% of their export revenue derives from oil. And uh, right now they're under significant strain. But if they default, they're going to be under even worse strain because they may be cut off from the vast majority of sources of financing. Now, they are seeking ways to pay the foreign debt and to potentially wait out low oil prices. That really is the strategy Maduro has chosen. But he may he simply may not make it. Um Really, the prolonged period of low oil prices, plus the draining of Venezuela's reserves. Uh, they're at around uh, $13 billion right now in foreign reserves, mostly in, uh, in uh, non-liquid uh, gold reserves. And so the strategy of the president right now is simply to sell off gold, to try to make those debt payments, and to postpone um, really a default, potentially even into another government. So the threat of default really is something that Venezuela wishes to avoid at all costs. Um Obviously, the issue with uh, defaulting is that it would set off a chain of litigation, just like the Argentine default did in 2001. Venezuela would potentially be facing years and years of costly court battles abroad, of creditors trying to seize their assets, of lengthy negotiations that often translate into the political sphere. And given Venezuela's other pressing social problems and the fact that really oil is key there, oil has funded... The entire Venezuelan socialist revolution and it will continue to fund the future government's actions. So, really, avoiding a default is something that Pedevesa, that the PSUV, and that the opposition coalition want to avoid at all costs, but it may become a reality in coming months. If oil prices rise, the Venezuelan government may be able to postpone it until really until they can restructure their debt or until they can reach some sort of financing agreement from abroad, potentially under a new government. But right now, given PDVSA's financial strain, given the fact that it's hard for Venezuela to get loans from abroad, and really given the fact that they're draining their reserves right now, just trying to fulfill all of their domestic obligations, they can't cut back much more on imports because otherwise they risk a, a lot of social unrest in the country. These are all pressures that are going to impact Venezuela in the coming months. And uh, the country is really going to face a tough road in avoiding default.
0: So I was tempted to ask, what is the worst case scenario for Venezuela? But almost everything we're talking about sounds like a worst case scenario. The questions that really come to mind for me are, it may not be on the scale of likely, but what if Maduro isn't ousted?
2: So if the president is not ousted and makes it until 2019, What's important to remember is that political survival is the first thing on his mind Uh, right now that political survival is basically taking the path of inaction on economic matters because he doesn't really want to take the kind of measures that would increase inflation and consequently affect voters uh, sentiment towards him. If he lasts until 2019 as president, um, really, re-election is probably going to be a steep road for him. But if he does remain in power, there is the the chance that he could take some sort of economic measures, slight openings, if you will, um, slight changes in already we're seeing uh, changes in the price of gasoline, for example. Now, those don't even come close to covering the cost of production. But really, governments often don't tend to act until they have the water up to their necks, so to speak, you know, so there may be some chance that Maduro may bite the bullet and take uh, these, these types of measures in, in a subsequent administration. However, uh, political survival is foremost on his mind. So right now he's kind of, in, in, in a way, defaulting on his uh, country's citizens in order to not default on foreign creditors. And that will continue informing his actions uh, for the next few years.
0: Is it at all within the realm of possibility that he will... Remain in office that long?
2: It's definitely plausible now, mostly because um, the cost of acting against him is very high, uh, both for the opposition and for members of his own party. The PSUV has to remain united if it hopes to win elections. And really, they've done a pretty good job of suppressing internal dissent. If they have dissent, it's usually behind closed doors. And the opposition really doesn't have the type of leverage from its seat in the legislature without uh, winning both the governorships and the presidency to really have any impact on uh, politics at a national level. The government has done a pretty good job of boxing them in using the Supreme Court, using uh, all the forces at its disposal. So there is the chance that Maduro could reach 2019 as president. There really is a, a slight chance of that. However, seeing that there's pressure from within his own party and from the opposition the threats are really rising against him. Um, We really do believe that uh, Maduro is going to face an uphill battle uh, in the next few years. And uh, whether that leads to political instability, whether that leads to increased opposition protests like we saw in 2014, those are all possibilities. But at this moment, he really can stay in power if nobody decides to move against him. If, for example, the PSUV does not back a referendum against the president, and if they do not back the results of any referendum against the president, simply that that type of inaction could grant Maduro the ability to remain in power for a few more years.
0: At Stratford we referred to Venezuela for quite some time as more or less a basket case. There is volatility there, there is instability, and according to your analysis, we can expect that political instability to linger Uh, No matter what the outcome of a recall referendum or a constitutional amendment, whether a new president takes office or doesn't, it's just going to be there. And for the most part, international markets at this point, I think, have priced uh, that instability out of their equations because it's just such a constant. When will we know that Venezuela has passed the worst of this?
2: Economic recovery depends on so many factors right now that it's hard to say whether it will be in the next few years or within the next decade that Venezuela really becomes a place that is more attractive to foreign capital than it has been in the past. If Maduro is removed soon and a new government starts taking some credible measures to try to stabilize the economy, then we may be looking at a nearer term uh, recovery. If Maduro remains in power and starts taking steady, cautious measures, as has been Really, his uh, his modus operandi for the past three years in power. Then we're going to see um, the timeline stretch out a bit. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's really hard to say in Venezuela how long it will be before companies can do business there the way that they did really in the early years of the Chavez administration or in the 1990s before Chavez came to power. But at this point, what we have to remember is that Venezuela is the kind of place where there are Lots of social considerations. Uh, You have to remember this place has existed under a extensive subsidy regime for a very long time, and these subsidies can't simply just be taken away. There are extensive economic problems that need to be straightened out that could have unforeseen consequences, such as boosting inflation even beyond the current levels, which are extremely high, uh, really the highest in the world right now. And so... All these factors have to be taken into account. The next government may bear the brunt of an economic adjustment. So just because you have, um, let's say, a dissident PSUV government, if if, if you so choose to call whatever government may come after Maduro, or if you have even an opposition government in power, they may have to bear the brunt of an economic adjustment. And so that is something that potential investors would have to factor into their equation. They would have to consider this. Right now, we really are in the early stages of this economic recovery, and it's really going to depend on all the factors uh, I previously mentioned.
0: Unfortunately, it sounds like uh, at the end of this tunnel for Venezuela, there's still a lot more dark.
1: Reggie, thank you.
0: For our next segment, we turn now to Belgium, which many of you, like my co-host Ben Sheen, might like to think of as a land of damn fine chocolate and beer. But it's also a land of very deep cultural and linguistic divisions and, as we've been learning since last November's terrorist attacks in Paris, the home of some very dangerous jihadists. So, to bring all of those threads together and better understand the scope of the threat highlighted by the March 22nd attacks in Brussels, we've asked our very own analyst, Sim Tack, to give us a verbal tour. Sim is actually from Belgium. He grew up near Ghent, uh, which is in the northwestern Flemish half, and he knows this country and its history very well. Thanks for being here, Sim.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Marla. One of the big questions I think that's on everyone's lips is why, out of all the countries in Europe, are we seeing this epicenter of jihadism in Belgium itself? Well I think there's two main issues that intersect each other in Belgium
3: uh, in this specific security dynamic that kind of make it that epicenter. One of those is of course the the migration situation in Europe where we have a a large muslim population living inside Belgium and then the second big uh, part to this is of course the the legal situation where we have specific constraints on Belgian law enforcement and legislation that perhaps make it easier for uh, jihadists to avoid detection in Belgium.
1: To go back to the first part of your answer, what is it that made Belgium such an attractive location initially for a lot of Muslims who are coming into Europe? Well, Belgium's actually had, had several different
3: waves of migration that, that shaped this, uh, this community. The first really major influence to this was prior to the seventies when Belgium was bringing, uh, guest labor into the country uh, at the time to work in the coal mines and heavy industry. Um, and this, uh, at one point started targeting the, the Turks specifically. And then afterwards, um, when, when all of these, uh, mines and factories started closing down in the, the 70s, early 80s. A lot of these populations stayed in place, brought family over. And then, of course, uh, on top of this, there is the cultural element where a significant portion of Belgium is French speaking, which means that for a lot of the, the North African Muslim communities, it, it's a lot easier to go to a place like Belgium than, for example, to Germany, um, because they have their their language that they can speak there.
0: Well, I mean, that really touches on the very foundation of the topic, which when you really look at Belgium geographically, culturally, linguistically, you have a country that's pretty much divided in half and has been through most of its modern history. Can you describe what those different halves look like and and why that leads to a different kind of a political culture in Belgium than we see in many other European countries.
3: Well, the, the way this has been shaped over history, really, is that we, you've got a northern part of Belgium that has typically been part of what is now the Netherlands um, and a southern portion that is much closer culturally to, to France. Um, when Belgium was created in 1830, right after the end of the Napoleonic era, um, it was created as somewhat as a buffer zone against the potential rise to power of France uh, in the future so one one of the main things that that we have there is a country with two different language communities to different cultures sitting together there's also a significant difference in economic situations in Flanders and Wallonia uh, with, with Flanders the Dutch-speaking northern part of Belgium uh, having its ports um, a lot of service industry petrochemical industry are around the ports this this is a part of the country that is is Doing fairly well, running a profit basically. Um, while if you look at the the southern part of Belgium, this is where we used to have the coal mines, heavy industry. But as mentioned before, in the in the seventies, early eighties, uh, all of this was shut down. And what we're left with is is a part of the country that's not really bringing in any money. That really lives on on a budget provided by the rest of the country, which creates its own. Political problems, of course, and then uh, just to top all of this off, um there is the very specific uh, situation of Brussels, which is key in in this whole terrorist threat issue here. Brussels itself is kind of neither Flanders nor wallonia it's its own little entity. Um, that has its own Brussels parliament, um, as well as the federal parliament built out of Flemish and Wallonian politicians that sits on top of that. Um, So it becomes a really complex legislative entity to work with.
0: How does that impact the powers of uh, police, other law enforcement investigations, uh, those kinds of situations as you start to get into the Brussels environment particular?
3: Well, it creates a different political context for those people that, that control police forces and law enforcement in Brussels. For example, in in the, the Belgian police system, mayors uh, still have a notable influence over uh, police action at a certain level. So when you find yourself in a, in a place like Brussels, where you have a very isolated political landscape. Uh, these mayors have have more of an opportunity to use the application of law enforcement in a way to to shape their electoral success um, and just in practical terms what what, what I mean by that is we 've seen in the past that mayors will be very reluctant to actually allow police forces to to crack down heavily on particular activities such as uh, extremist behavior in areas of Brussels because there's, there's two big things there. They don't want riots on their hands, which is something that has occurred in the past following uh, law enforcement actions. Um, and they they want to get votes from these areas. These these uh, immigrant populations make up a large portion of the electorate in Brussels.
1: And I think the, the law enforcement aspect is only part of it as well. And as we've seen in the past, to actually combat groups that are radicalized and have an intent to carry out attacks, you need a very well-developed intelligence network. You actually need to have the ability to conduct tracking, surveillance, targeting, and that requires a lot of input and manpower. How is Belgium structured in terms of actually having the intelligence assets to uh, be able to monitor and take action against such groups? Well, that's actually one of the other
3: big problems that Belgium is facing. Just a few years ago, um, numbers were showing that while there were, um, I believe, about 900 persons on our intelligence services watch list, we only had six hundred people working for our, our internal intelligence service that is tasked with, with watching these terrorists. So obviously six hundred people aren't gonna cut it to to watch nine hundred people full time. And and this is just this is just one of the problems. It's it's personnel, it's budget, it is legal capabilities. The the Belgian intelligence system is one that's still very much catching up with current day threats. Um, a lot of changes have been made over past years, um, especially after the the Paris attacks, which also heavily involved Belgian intelligence in the aftermath. So there there is a lot of um, intent to change things there, both on a political level and within the security agencies themselves. But we still see a lot of uh, reports coming out of the the intelligence agencies saying uh, that they're simply, you know, they're nowhere near actually being able to to control this. One of the most recent pieces of information that came out after the Brussels attacks is that apparently, uh, over the weekends and at night, only two people are actually actively working in the intelligence services. So it's, it's things like this, where the the Belgian intelligence community uh, simply still has to mature into the, the current day and age of, of fighting terrorism at a high pace.
0: A lot has been said about the specific neighborhood where this cell was uh, living, uh, working, planning. This neighborhood near Brussels called Molenbeek. Can you give us a little bit of a guided tour of, of what this area is like and why would a cell this active uh, be able to find haven there?
3: Well, there's there's several uh, neighborhoods that have been touched by this this investigation and and are all kind of known in Belgium as the same the same type of neighborhood. Um, one of these is is Molenbeek, the other is uh, Schaerbeek, um, and and there's a few other smaller ones. But the main thing here is that we're talking about something kind of close to a ghetto, where um, over time, as migration waves have have exploded in Belgium. Um, these are the areas where a lot of the the North African migrant communities have kind of gathered and and set up shop together, which is something that has happened in different parts of the country, not just in Brussels. But of course, this is this is where the legislative issues surrounding Brussels meet the the migration issue. When, when you look at these neighborhoods in Belgium, when you when you walk around them other than the the very basic architecture you could as well consider yourself in a foreign country these neighborhoods have suffered severely over time with uh, with security issues there's been years and years of issues in in Belgium politics trying to push the government to do more in terms of security against against regular crimes as well as cracking down on on radical islam one of the main reasons that radicalists are able to thrive in this area and to hide out there um, is that you've got a concentration of a, a marginalized section of your population, basically. You've, you've got a, a population that at this point, you know, when we're talking about generation two, three, four of immigrants, that has no link in terms of identity to the original population of Belgium or the population of their home country. Um, so they find themselves completely isolated, looking for answers often in religion. And and of course, in these neighborhoods, you, you will have um, some imams that, that are preaching particularly radical things, you will have certain mosques around which these people can start gravitating and once you have that set up, you, you can see terrorist cells coming together. These are also areas that have provided uh, several different fighters um, to go to, to fight in the Syrian conflict, which have returned some of the the attackers involved in the Paris and Brussels attacks have actually been to Syria to fight there, um, have come back, were known to local law enforcement and, and everything. Um, but then because of the nature of these neighborhoods, the way that that community... Uh, also sticks together, it becomes very difficult for outside law enforcement to come in there and, and try to root this out
0: it's not common that you see terrorist cells actually staging attacks near the neighborhoods where they found sanctuary. It would make sense that if the cell was responsible for planning the Paris attacks, as we believe that they were, that they would have traveled to do that. But to actually deploy an attack so close to their own neighborhood seems unusual. What led up to that? And, and was this actually uh, what was intended?
3: Well, we we know at this point that the attack that they ended up conducting, targeting Brussels airport and the, the metro system, was not actually what they had initially been thinking of. Um, there's different versions of what attack they had actually wanted to plan. Um, one version says that um, Abdel Salam, one of the Paris attack suspects that was apprehended uh, just a few days before the Brussels attacks, that he was planning to organize a shooting inside brussels while other accomplices would set off explosives at other targets although it's not known what exactly those targets would have been in that plan so basically an attack very similar to the paris attack the other version um, and this is based on evidence found in the apartment that some of these alleged terrorists were staying at is video detailing the movements of the head of um, the belgian nuclear institution so that that indicates that perhaps they were trying to target nuclear facilities rather than the airport um, and the metro station. Those nuclear facilities are also not located in Brussels itself, quite a while away from them, but also not terribly far from uh, from Brussels itself, within the confines of this tiny country of Belgium where they had found their refuge. Um, I think one of the much stronger influences to look at here in terms of um, conducting attacks where they had had sought that refuge here is the the immense pressure that they were under at this time from law enforcement after the paris attack we've seen one raid after the other in belgium we saw Abdeslam get captured and and we know now that Abdeslam was still actively involved in in ongoing planning for a future plot so he obviously had a lot of intelligence uh, on his person on you know where they were going to attack, who was involved, what types of uh, weapons they would be using, all information that would make it very difficult for this cell to continue their plans if the law enforcement officers got to it first, basically. And, and this is one of the reasons that they conducted the attacks as early as they did, uh, potentially completely shifted targets. And one of the important things to keep in mind there is that Even though we're talking about terrorist cells seeking refuge and not wanting to conduct attacks right there, as far as we can tell right now, almost the entire cell that was left was involved in this attack. So it might not so much have been the case where they were thinking about um, how do we continue to operate in this particular area after this attack? Maybe this was, uh, as they planned, their last attack.
0: Right. So we we could call that a a use it or lose it campaign that also turned into more or less a, a dead ender campaign. There is no more trail there to trace.
1: Exactly. And again, this seems to track with a lot of the things that we saw during and after the attack. The sense that they actually had decent devices. They had a a well-qualified bomb maker who could actually make their equipment for them. But then the actual attacks themselves were poorly executed. And as we often write about at Stratfor, terrorists go through their own planning cycle, there's a series of steps they have to go through. And if their cycle is accelerated, if if their hand is forced and they have to do something, then it's tricky because at the end of the day, they have some degree of training, but not to the same extent as, as professional forces or even some professional terrorists we've seen elsewhere. And this is revealed in other ways, such as their poor operational security, which then allowed them to be further compromised as their networks were infiltrated, broken apart. So it's definitely... I don't think they achieved the aims that they set out to in terms of mass casualties but certainly it's influencing the 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 feeling on the continent where actually there is a genuine fear of of terrorism and that's the whole purpose of it almost to to instill this sense of creeping dread in a population how do you think belgium can manage that in some ways belgium has been expecting this for a long time so
3: there's Quite unlike the situation in the United States after uh, 9/11, for example, there is not this the the massive shock or realization that there is such a thing as terrorism and it can hit us at home. Um, it, it's much more of a sentiment of you know disappointment at how we how we did know that this was coming but didn't manage to stop it. So I, I think the way Belgium will be dealing with this uh, in the future will most likely focus on improving that resilience improving capabilities of of identifying and, and stopping terrorist plots rather than a, a sudden shift in in policy or priorities or anything uh, we, we've seen the government take a very very similar stance in in their rhetoric after the attacks um, similar to what they've they've done regarding smaller incidents in the past or or attacks in neighboring countries, which is basically trying to play up the values of, of solidarity and unity rather than fueling hatred and and basically have it, having parts of the population go against each other
1: there. I think that will be something interesting to track going forward because the Islamic State rode in on a huge surge of popularity when they were successful. And actually their message was very strong, very powerful, and also very widely transmitted using social media as well as word of mouth to, to spread the message. And certainly a returning fighter can bring with them a very powerful first-hand account of what's actually happening and and use that as a recruiting tool. As Islamic State's position in the world continues to deteriorate, do you think we'll see a a reduction in the appeal to youths looking for a calling? I don't think that
3: we'll actually necessarily see a, a drop in that. One of the things that we've seen in the past, like before people were talking about the Islamic State, is that youths were doing exactly the same thing in in Belgium. We saw, for example, Sharia for Belgium, an organization that rose up from these particular ghetto areas, as well as some some other concentrations of, of immigrants in, in other parts of Belgium. And and they became the first real focus of intelligence operations against potential Islamic terrorism in Belgium. That movement eventually completely flipped into the the IS propaganda machine and, and become, became supporters of the Islamic State. I'm, I'm fairly certain that once we stop talking about the Islamic State, someone else will rise up and will basically
1: gathered the support in, in their place.
0: Sam, thank you very much for taking the time out to share some thoughts with us on this.
1: Thank you. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also listen more and view our videos on YouTube and also check out strat4.com.
0: As always, if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that through this address, strat4.com slash podcast slash feedback. Again, thanks for listening. And we look forward to joining you next time.